Well, good Sunday morning, Chapel Roswell. My name is Joe McKechnie, and I'm so blessed to be the pastor here, and it's an honor to be in worship with each and every one of you this morning. The supporting cast, what does that mean? I'm standing up here on a red carpet. That's pretty cool. What does that mean? We'll find out in just a few moments. Now, uh, you guys know that I'm a big college football fan. There, there may have been some good games on yesterday. I really didn't pay much attention. Any, any Georgia Tech fans here? Okay, I'm proud that you're willing to admit that, but, okay, no, this is cool for you tech fans, this is good. Okay, the biggest blowout, the, the most one-sided game in the history of college football involved Georgia Tech. The year was 1916. Georgia Tech beat up on tiny Cumberland College. The final whopping score was 222 to nothing. How could that be? Was Georgia Tech simply that good? Yeah, they were. Was Cumberland simply that bad? Uh, yeah, they were. But as with many things, okay, there is a story behind the story. There's a story behind the story. Now, Georgia Tech was hosting Cumberland College. It's a tiny Presbyterian school in rural Tennessee. Now, Georgia Tech at that time, they were coached by the legendary guy known as John Heisman. Yeah, the Heisman Trophy is named after him. He would lead Georgia Tech to a national title the following year in 1917. But back then, Georgia Tech was hosting Cumberland College. Back then, Georgia Tech, not yet known as the Rambling Wreck, not yet known as the Yellow Jackets, they were simply known as the Golden Tornado. Now, before becoming the coach at Georgia Tech, John Heisman, he was the coach at Auburn, then he moved on to Clemson, then he moved up to Georgia Tech. Now, John Heisman was also Georgia Tech's baseball coach. And the previous year, Cumberland College, their baseball team traveled down to Atlanta. They whipped up on Georgia Tech's baseball team 22 to nothing. Like I said, John Heisman, the coach not only of football, but also of baseball. Now, after that 22 nothing shellacking by tiny Cumberland College in baseball, Heisman found out that the Cumberland players had a couple of ringers on their squad, some minor league baseball players who were brought in, they were ringers, and they helped make the score what it was. So they were scheduled to play Georgia Tech, but there was one problem. Uh, the year before, Cumberland College dismantled their football team. They gave up on football. They discontinued the program. But John Heisman, he didn't care. He said, hey, we've got a contract to play you guys at football. Either you show up or we're going to sue you. And tiny Cumberland College, they were going through a financial crisis at the time. They realized they couldn't get sued. It literally would bankrupt the school. So they did something interesting. There was a young man who served as an athletic trainer previously on the Cumberland football team when they still had a football program. And he decided to get a couple of his fraternity brothers to travel down to Atlanta by train to take on the Golden Tornado of Georgia Tech. Heisman wanted to, 
to prove that, that, that number one, that the, the college polls at that time weren't really accurate. They simply just decided, okay, this team won by this score, this team won by another score. That's all they did. They didn't look at the level of competition. They had the sport riders simply say, okay, this team is better than this one because they won by a big margin. John Heisman didn't like that, so he wanted to prove a point. He also wanted to seek revenge on his tiny Cumberland College because of that baseball score the year earlier. So Georgia Tech, one of the best football teams in the country, on their way to a national title the next year, hosting a bunch of frat boys from tiny Presbyterian College, Cumberland College. How did it go? Well, Georgia Tech, they scored on their first play. On the first play for Cumberland College, they fumbled the ball. Georgia Tech picked it up. They scored a touchdown. In the entire game, Cumberland College finished with big-time negative yardage. They never made a first down. It's also interesting. Georgia Tech never made a first down. Why? They didn't have to. They would score within one, two, maybe three plays at the most. For the entire game, Georgia Tech only ran 52 plays. Why? Because that's all they had to, to score 32 touchdowns, okay? That was the deal. They only threw no passes during the course of that game. Uh, the Tech players, they, they were going hard after the, the, the Cumberland players. Several of them literally had to leave the game with some pretty serious injuries. The Cumberland College quarterback, he got knocked out. He had to be carried off the field with a concussion. Back then, they didn't have the protocol like we do today. He went back in the game, had to be carted off again. A second concussion, went back into the game, knocked down really hard. A third concussion, he finally left the game. There's a story behind the story. The score was 126 at halftime, and John Heisman didn't, he didn't pull back. He had his starters play for the entire game. And this is part of Heisman's halftime speech. His team up 126 to nothing. He said to his players, yeah, we are ahead. You guys are doing well, but you just can't tell with those Cumberland players. We don't know what they have up their sleeves. They may spring a surprise. Be alert, men. In the second half, true story, three of the Cumberland players ran to the edge of the field. They climbed a fence and they ran off. Nobody saw them yet that day. Feeling some pity on his opponents, John Heisman for the second half, instead of playing 30 minutes of football, they only played 15. The final score, 222 to nothing. But that's the intriguing story behind the story. The story behind the story. You have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. But very often there's that story behind the story. Uh, this morning, friends, we kick off a four-part series entitled The Supporting Cast, in which we take a look at maybe the stories behind the Christmas story, the stories behind the birth narrative of Jesus. We know about Mary and Joseph and, of course, Jesus, but there are so many seemingly minor characters who had a tremendous impact on the Christmas story. Now, when you think of a, a movie, for example, the star of the show receives the most acclaim, the most fame, but the supporting cast, they are the ones who really make it happen. 
Now, for Christians around the country, this morning is the time, the start of the time known as Advent. As Marion mentioned, it's a time of preparation for Christmas, a time of anticipation for the coming of Jesus. The word Advent comes from the word adventure. It's a time of, of looking forward to something that's going to happen. Now, before Jesus was born, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people were uh, so eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah, someone who would uh, drive away the, the Roman Empire or drive away the enemies that the Jewish people had. Uh, they were seeking a Messiah, the anointed one. Now, with that said, they wanted political freedom. Uh, they were kind of disappointed when Jesus ushered in spiritual freedom. But our story behind the story this Sunday morning takes a look at a woman named Elizabeth. What does her story have to do with you? What does her story have to do with me? How can we be challenged by her story? Because the truth is, we definitely can. We'll find out how her story intersects with yours. Now, a little bit of background of Elizabeth and her husband. They uh, were both elderly. Her husband was a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was a Jewish priest. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they didn't have any children. But in their later years, Elizabeth became pregnant. Uh, they viewed this as a blessing from God, God's direct intervention upon their lives. Their son would be named John a name that literally means in Hebrew, God is gracious. So John, God is gracious. He would uh, grow up to be a, a very Christ-like, although Christ wasn't Christ-like yet. He would grow up to be a very godly man, a very religious man who would preach and teach. And he urged other people to repent as they anticipated the coming of the Messiah. You see, John uh, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, he would later become known as John the Baptist. So Elizabeth was giving birth eventually to John the Baptist, and Elizabeth had a cousin, a cousin, a young teenage, soon-to-be-married woman named Mary. Mary was engaged, you see, to a man named Joseph. But, but prior to their marriage, Mary, who, who was a virgin, uh, was visited by an angel of the Lord and told that she is going to give birth to a son. Furthermore, Mary is told that that son will be called the son of the Most High God and heir to the ancient throne of King David. So Mary, she was not yet married. Uh, you see, during that time, it was pretty typical for maybe a 12 or 13-year-old girl to get engaged. This engagement would last about a year, during which time the, the young girl, the young woman, she still lived with her mother and father, but for finally, after a little more than a year or so, would go live with her husband, and they would consummate their marriage. So here was Mary, a young teenager from a poor family, Family. She's pregnant. If people find out, she would be ostracized. But the angel told Mary something else. The angel told Mary this, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month of pregnancy, for nothing is impossible with God. So Mary's pregnant. 
and her much older cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant. We read about their stories in the first chapter of the book of Luke. Luke 1, verse 39 and verse 40. At that time, Mary got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. Okay, uh, so uh, Mary traveled to see her cousin. Mary lived in the tiny village known as Nazareth. Elizabeth lived in a town just outside of Jerusalem. It's probable, I think, that, that Mary had been to Elizabeth's house, house before. After all, Mary's family would have traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast or uh, maybe other uh, festivals or feasts that the Jewish people had. Uh, so Mary would travel about 70 miles. She probably traveled on the typical way back then on the, the back of a donkey. And in those days, people would travel about 20 miles a day. So Mary was taking this journey that would take her about four days to complete. She finally arrives at the home of her dear cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is about six months pregnant. And what a greeting it was. We read about that great, powerful, sentimental, loving greeting in Luke 1, 41, 42, and 43. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she proclaimed, Blessed are you, Mary, a young woman, and blessed is the child you shall bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord will come to me? Elizabeth crying out with a sense of humility, a sense of honor, and a sense of excitement. Uh, the Holy Spirit told Elizabeth that her cousin Mary was pregnant. And not only was she pregnant, she was pregnant with the one who is the Messiah, the son of the most high God. It's interesting in scripture, Elizabeth is the first person ever to refer to Jesus as Lord. So Mary traveling for about four days, a, a grueling trip to say the least. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I've never been pregnant. I never have. I don't know what it would be like. I, it may be a little painful for all I know. I'm not, not really sure. But I know 13 years ago, my wife Catherine was pregnant with our son. When we found out that Catherine was pregnant, we were so excited and, and we didn't want to know the gender of that child. When we finally reached that point when the doctors would tell you what the gender was, we didn't want to know. We wanted to be surprised. And so we had the doctor on a note card write the gender of the child. He sealed it up in an envelope, gave it to us. We were going to hold on to it until Christmas. We didn't make it to Christmas. We barely made it out of the parking lot. We opened the card on the way home, found out that we were having a son. 
I still remember the day on which our son David was born. Uh, Catherine had been in labor for 37 hours. Uh, the epidural wasn't taking, and so she was in a lot of pain. And I could tell that, that she was suffering, and I grew frustrated when the, the nurses didn't seem to, to rush to her aid. And so for the first time in my entire life, I raised my voice, okay? I politely shared with the nurses that my wife needed some immediate medical care because she was about to give birth. I was in the delivery room when our son David was born and it literally brought tears to my eyes. What a powerful moment. 2,000 years ago, Elizabeth would give birth to a son. He was the cousin of Jesus. Three months later, Mary gave birth to a son. So why would Mary, all the way from Nazareth, make a 70-mile trek, a 70-mile journey to visit Elizabeth? Well, I think we can see God at work here in a couple of different ways, okay? I think that God is leading her to a place of safety, a place of protection. Mary, from a really, really small, seemingly insignificant village known as Nazareth. And I think people there would, uh, would stigmatize her. They, they would gossip about her. They would ostracize her. They would humiliate her. They would point fingers and they would shame her. Uh, so God was leading her to a place away from that place. You see, God's call is always met with God's protection. God's call is always met with God's protection. I think back to my career as a television sportscaster, and, and you know what? After a while, I felt like God was, uh, was just calling me to, to leave behind that career and go into full-time vocational ministry. I mean, you talk about being called to, uh, to get out of your comfort zone. I mean, uh, that was a rough thing to ponder. In fact, true story, I, I neglected that call. I ignored that call. I ran from that call for many, many years. After all, I didn't want to leave a career that I loved. I, I didn't want to leave a career that, that I was kind of good at. Uh, it was scary. It was intimidating. I was comfortable where I was. The thought of being in ministry, honestly, was downright scary. It was nerve-wracking. It was downright scary. I was hired as a, a youth pastor at a church in a, another city, having to leave family and friends and a career behind to, to move elsewhere. After a while, I knew that God was going to call me to seminary, so having to go back to school for many years to learn stuff that I knew nothing about. But you know what? I actually had a sense of peace. God's call is always met with God's covering. God's call is always met with God's covering. You see, in our scripture, God knew that Mary would be treated poorly. She would be talked about in her tiny village. So the Lord made a way for Mary to travel elsewhere. You see, back home, again, Mary would be subject to cruel taunts and shaming and slander. But you know what? With Elizabeth, her cousin, she was safe. Uh, back home, Mary would have to stand on her own spiritual feet, maybe uh, lonely and maybe misunderstood. Uh, but with Elizabeth, she was loved and she was accepted. 
you see in this story, in this narrative, in this passage, in this scripture, uh, God is behind the scenes making a way. And the same God who was making a way in Mary's life is making a way in your life and in my life today. God is active. God is not distant. God is caring. God is not removed. Can you look at your life? Can can you really look at your life and and see God at work? Uh, Not only in the seemingly uh, big things, but in the seemingly little things. Secondly, uh, I think Mary was led to Elizabeth because Elizabeth was already pregnant. Uh, The two women could kind of relate to each other in their their child caring before their uh, childbirth kind of places. And think about the various thoughts that were probably going through Mary's mind. She uh, was probably nervous. She was uh, probably scared. Uh, Maybe she was excited. Maybe she was humbled and honored by the fact that God was choosing her. But in Elizabeth, Mary was with someone who loved and respected her. No judgment, no shame. Maybe you have some anxiety, maybe you have some fear about something that you're going through right now. But God, as we learn through this story, places people in our lives who got your back. People who are with you. People who are accepting and not shaming. People who continually remind you that you are not alone. Mary wasn't alone. God placed someone special in her life for just a season as that. And God is doing the same in your life and in my life. In verse 56, we see that their time together had to come to an end. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, it says, and then she returned home. But what a special time that was for both of them. You see, no man, no woman is an island. We all live and we thrive in community and relation. Sometimes we're in a season in which we're able to give, and and other times we're in a season where we need to receive. But through both, we can see the ways in which God is deliberate and intentional in the ways he is working in our lives. And the ways in which God is using a supporting cast to support you using you at times as a supporting cast to support someone else. What are the ways in which God is doing that in your life? You see, we need people like Elizabeth in our lives. Uh, She was much older. She was very wise. She could provide a a listening ear to Mary, tender compassion to Mary, and godly wisdom to Mary. We need people like that. Maybe you're being called to be that person. Uh, Maybe you're being called to a position and place where God can use you to speak life into someone. 
Maybe you're in a position and place where God can use you as a mentor uh, to maybe somebody younger who uh, can learn from your guidance and your wisdom. Uh, Maybe you're in a position and place where God can use you to provide a listening ear to someone who is hurting. Maybe you're in a position and place where God can use your experiences, both good and not so good, to encourage someone else. Maybe God is using you as a part of that so-called supporting cast where you can make a difference in the lives of someone else. Or maybe at this season in your life, you're, you're like Mary. You may have some anxiety or, or maybe fear about something that maybe you're going through. But God will place people in your lives who, again, got your back. People who continually remind you that you're not alone. And Mary wasn't alone. God placed someone special in her life. God is placing special people in your life. And God is using you to be a special person in the lives of someone else. How is God calling you to be a part of his supporting cast? Because he is. That I know. Can I pray for you? Dear loving God, we so much thank you for the myriad of ways in which you show your love and support for us. The ways in which you're calling us to support someone else. Lord God, may we look for and notice and appreciate the situations in which you are calling us to pursue. And as we enter the time of preparation that leads to Christmas, may we experience the good news that comes in the form of a tiny baby. Lord, we love you and we thank you for first loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.